Hey everybody, this is part two, or FOP Podcast 1-1620-B. We're going to go straight into news and social media nuggets. If you skip the first one, that is FOP 1-1620-A, and it's all the politics. This one is going to be the fun. Enjoy. Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Trying to get crazy with this scene. Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Military Corner. Families that deploy paratroopers receive menacing messages warned to double-check social media settings. This is not good. 82nd Airborne Division is briefing family members of deployed paratroopers to double-check their social media settings and report any strange messages they may receive after some malevolent ones were reported to the command. First combat team deployed to Kuwait in early January as part of the emergency response to the region over the high intensity with Iran. Families have reported instances where they have received unsolicited content from menacing messaging, so Lieutenant Colonel Mike Burns, a division spokesman. Sorry, I got up. I don't have my fucking cigar lighter. My wife's got it. I'm all fucked up. Um, we have done several things to inform our paratroopers and families of the rise, the risk, and ways that they can protect themselves, Burns has added. I also mostly spoke to Brigade Family Readiness Group leaders today. The 82nd has told family members to be vigilant and practice smart behavior. Family members should check their social media settings, and they're saying some of this seems like it's state-sponsored. But I kind of wonder... I hate to say that. I kind of wonder where these messages are coming from. Seriously. You know, we just saw a Iranian breakdown, a Iranian reporter, all the cabal that's pushing this shit. And it really makes you think. Is it the state? Or is it reigning sympathizers doing all this stuff? Seriously. I mean, don't say I'm fucking being a crazy-ass fucking crazy-ass, but it just makes me fucking think. Army advisor team will head to the Pacific as U.S. tries again to pivot. This is going into the Pacific Theater, and you know it's about China. Army deserter from Lewis McCord arrested in Oregon. 
A deserter from the U.S. Army has been apprehended in Oregon after he was reportedly missing for joint base Lewis McCord. The Lincoln County Sheriff's Office said deputies arrested 32-year-old Christopher Lee Gardner on Thursday at Cape Perpetua Visitor Center near Yaches, Yaches, Oregon. I don't even know where the hell that is. After receiving calls of man acting suspiciously, the Army had previously issued a statewide bulletin identifying Gardner as a possible armed and dangerous. Authorities evacuated the visitor center made the rest. Oregon State Police later found Gardner's car at Neptune State Scenic Viewport in North Lane County. A gun was inside the vehicle. Gardner's being held in Lincoln County Jail. Yeah. Good for him to get caught. Air Force unit begins beta testing no-fail practice PT set. Starting January 20th, the command will begin beta testing the diagnostic PT test similar to an, an idea first unveiled by Chief Master Sergeant Air Force Keith O. Wright. It is a no-fail trial PT test that if passed would count as an airman's official score. So let's see what they're doing. Uh, the update is the PT policy by the spring, according to spokesman. The AFPT policy update is one track. We're following normal processes. The Air Force continues to review and evaluate its fitness policy structure. The current Air Force fitness test is gender and age normed and combines 1.5-mile run with maximum push-ups and sit-up repetition with one minute. An excellent composite score is equal to or greater than 90 points with all minimum components met. A satisfactory score is 75. For the diagnostic test, airmen are current on their fitness assessment may attempt up to three diagnostic assessments or mock tests during the time period ranging from 45 days prior to the official assessment month up to 15 days prior to their assessment date. An airman may also be able to apply a diagnostic test for certain components. This is a trial run for push-ups only. If airman completes the test, he or she may elect to use the score as their official score. Once an assessment is recorded, the airman may not take another test. Officials are creating specific guidance tailored to each AFMC unit. The practice test aims to both motivate airmen to maintain a year-round exercise and fitness program. Fear of failed PT tests and the potential of career-ending discipline action is a major stressor that we are looking to eliminate through a sound testing protocol. In August, Wright spokesman Senior Master Sergeant Hale Kibbe said that the service had begun looking at a possibility of a no-fail trial PT test for the purpose of reducing test-taking anxiety among... Oh, my fucking God. That's why my ex-son-in-law failed his PT test so much. It's on you to stay in test. Are you serious? Okay. Here's what military stores are doing to get ready for 4.1 million new shoppers, the biggest increase in eligible customers for decades. But defense official commissary and exchange of morale, welfare, and recreation officials have been preparing for influx of newly eligible customers for months to ensure the shelves are well stocked. They're also keeping an eye on staffing in stores. While no one has a crystal ball to predict these shoppers will buy and how much, there are some items that officials believe will be popular among new veteran and veterans care givers. One example is meat, because commissary have generally good pricing on meat. A retired Navy rear animal is also for a long-time chief executive officer of the Navy Exchange Service Command, said. Defense Commissary Agency has been ramping up orders for vendors in certain geographic areas where they expect a higher one, like San Diego, San Antonio, and Hawaii. Preliminary data indicate that the Pearl Harbor store, several stores in California, and the store of Fort Sam Houston, Texas, are among those seeing increased traffic. The new benefits were authorized by law for all veterans with a VA service-connected disability rating, Purple Heart receipts, 
veterans are former POWs and primary family caregiver giver of eligible veterans under the caregiver program. Previously, those with a 100% service-connected disability, a MOH recipient, were allowed the benefits. According to the Purple Heart Disability Veterans Equal Access Act, these populations are now entitled to access commissary exchange and certain MWR stuff. You're not going to be that excited when you get there. Yes, the meat's good. Hey, on base, that's where I go get good shit. But it's not that much cheaper when you do the surcharge, which is a service fee on top of it. You're not saving that much money. And it's not convenient. 59-year-old Afghanistan... Gee, many crickets is trying English. 59-year-old Afghanistan veteran will report to Army basic training this summer. This is... Insane, I didn't even know you could do this. A 10-year service break, a Staff Sergeant Monty L. Gould will still have to report to BCT in Fort Jackson. A 59-year-old former Marine and Civil Affairs soldier was less than three years short of retirement when he left the Army in 2009 to move home and spend more time with his family. But after work calmed down in civilian life, Gould began a year-long process to re-enlist with the Army Reserve Unit so he could be eligible for retirement. It's kind of cool that they get to see somebody who's 59 and isn't all fat, beat up with diabetes and on their deathbed, said Ghoul, who practices jujitsu and rucks with 50 pounds or 7 miles per week. He will be joining the same unit as his son, Specialist Jared Gould, at the 405th Civil Affair Battalion in Las Vegas, Nevada. If I'm lucky, I got 20 more years before I drop dead, he says, which I thought was pretty funny. To me, this is a last hurrah. To have the opportunity to serve again is a thrill. Amazingly, this 59-year-old is not the oldest person to go through basic. In 1999, a 68-year-old shipped to basic training. Hmm. I don't think I could do it. I'm so fucking out of shape. This one cracked me the fuck up, and I... God, I hope he doesn't get in trouble. West Point cadets sought donations to bring Porn Star as his date to Yearling Winter Weekend. A West Point cadet briefly tried to raise money online to cover travel and lodging costs for adult film star to be his date for formal banquet at Storied Academy. The GoFundMe page was offline Wednesday, but the military news website task a purpose of the page titled Help Me Bring Diamond Fox to YWW was launched this past weekend and had listed $370 in donations. Fox is a veteran adult movie actress and YWW refers to Yearling Winter Weekend. West Point sophomores are called yearlings. The cadet wrote that he had no money and asked, please help donate the boy's dream come true. The U.S. Military Academy said Wednesday the cadet removed the page from the site. Federal law prohibits members of the military from using their official position for personal gain. This prohibition extends to using or appearing to use one military status to solicit funds. Fox, replying to questions from the Associated Press on her Instagram account, said the cadet was very polite and respectful, and that she was honored by the invitation as someone from the military family. She had told him he would attend if he covered the bill for a hotel and flight from Fort Lauderdale. She would not identify the cat, nor did West Point, and they haven't said if he's going to get in trouble. So, <clears throat> I don't know who this is, but let's check that ass out. Literally. <laughs> so we're gonna fucking do a Google search, and I, I meant to do this earlier, but I, I didn't get around to it. Diamond Fox, Diamond Fox images. 
Oh, she's pretty. Yeah, everything on her is fake, but she's she's pretty. I don't see why she couldn't front it because she has a website, diamondfox.com. <clears throat> I'm opening it right now. Let's see. I'm sure she makes people pay. Nothing is free and light. Yeah, it's members login. How much does she charge? Uh, I want to cite member login. Uh, enter here. Uh, there's not a whole lot of nudity on the front page, so don't think I'm being a perv boy. How much does it cost? Uh, I don't mind cookies. Join me. Here we go. 30 bucks a month to watch old porn movie, and she can't front a trip to fucking West Point. Okay. You're a piece of shit. To our sad news. <clears throat> I hate to do it after talking about a porn star. Soldier killed by bomb blast in Afghanistan identified Staff Sergeant Ian P. McLaughlin and PFC Michael A. Villavon died after the vehicle struck an IED. McLaughlin, 29, was from Newport News, Virginia, while Villavon, 21, was a native of Joliet, Illinois. Both soldiers were assigned to the 307th Brigade Engineer Battalion, 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division. May God be with them and their families. Then we had this one, Air Force investigating death of two airmen at Spagdalem Air Base. Army First Class Xavier Leppert and Airman First Class Aziz Whitehurst, both age 20, were found unresponsive in their dorm. The cause of death is still under investigation. More information will be released as it become available. She said no other base members were in the dormitory room and neither airman had roommates. That's just suspect. And then another one. Soldier dies during freefall training in Arizona. An Army Special Operations soldier died military freefall training in Elway, Arizona on Tuesday, aware of an incident resulting in the death of a U.S. Army Special Operations Command soldier during a routine military freefall training event, said Lieutenant Colonel Lauren <coughs> Beimer. Local media reported that the training event took place Monday night or early Tuesday morning. The incident is under investigation, Beimer said. Army Special Operations officials did not immediately respond to requests for comments detailing the type of jump training being performed. LOA is a common location for Special Operations forces to deduct advanced parachute training. That's fucking horrible. So God be with their family. Two are college crazy. Harvard professor, summary execution of Iran general, another abuse of power. On Sunday, Tribe followed up further stating with SecDef's concession that he didn't see any specific evidence of an imminent threat that may make killing Soleimani an act of self-defense. It's increasingly looking like summary execution without trial just to keep his president in office. Another gross abuse of power. The latter part appears to be a reference to the abuse of power impeachment. Campus reform has previously reported on Tribe as he was participating in the signing a letter for the House of Representatives urging them to impeach. Additionally, campus reform reported on Tribe when he made comments following the 2019 Fourth of July celebration comparing Trump celebrating in a tweet to that of a dictator. Trump tweeted, the resemblance today before Tampa Square is chilling. 
The Tiananmen Square episode involved the suppression and slaughter of thousands of protesters, which is actually what happened in Iran. 1500, Mr. Tribe. University of Michigan professor, we have a mad bomber in the White House. You got a theme coming? I see a theme too. Uh, Professor titled No War with Iran, the protest titled No War with Iran, which had been co-sponsored by this club such as Arab Student Association, Huron Valley Democratic Socialists of America, and the College Democrats, attended by 200 people, which was probably purported in the paper, gigantic crowds. Juan Cole, a professor of history at the University of Michigan who specializes in the study of modern Middle East and Islamic studies, made the remarks against the president and members of his administration during a Facebook live stream of the protest. We have a mad bomber in the White House. We have somebody who's erratic. We have a secretary of defense who's lobbyist for the arms industry. We have a secretary of state who is a Kansas oil man. The professor went on rallying against recent and existing economic sanctions against Iran, accusing Trump of trying to destroy lives in the country and putting Iran in a corner. Iran was on the verge of being welcomed to the world community. It was going to buy Boeing jets. However, the professor stated the protest was not approval of the regime, but rather tradition to descend against the government. Cole has been part of the announced speaker lineup from an event including Ann Army Commissioner Zanib Loski and Palestinian youth movement leader Janine Yassin. Cole also appeared on a podcast, Democracy Now!, and called the decision part of the Hollow Shell Administration, repeatedly calling the president's behavior erratic and clear personality deficits. The day after the protest occurred, he also tweeted, Only the trauma of white guys matter, apparently, against Indiana Representative Jim Banks after he had commented that Minnesota Representative Ilian Omar PTSD comments about Trump airstrike against General Salimi. As for the protest, the organizers of the event have planned a teach-in in Washita County, Michigan, have started a GoFundMe page to collect donations for equipment for the event. I'm sure fucking... Some liberal guy is going to come in and pay for it all. ASU instructor shut down Trump's Twitter account to combat hate speech. They have all these different little pro-Islam things on a page. One great way to counter hate speech would be for Twitter to shut down real Donald Trump's Twitter account. I'm a free speech champion, but if we cannot yell fire in a crowded movie theater, the president should not allow to encourage violence on Twitter. Really. The instructor also stated that he considered himself a free speech champion for tenure, but we cannot yell fire, blah, blah, blah. Garcia, who's also editor of Vanguardia America and a columnist for Arizona Mirror, also expressed disdain at a Gallup poll in December where the poll suggested that former Barack Obama and Trump were tied for most admiral men. No story makes me think that Trump could we re- win re-election than this one. Are we really living in a country that is this divided? Yes, we are. You just don't get out of your bubble. Last May, Garcia wrote a column for the Arizona Mirror suggesting that the enablers of Trump and his administration should be shamed. In the article, the instructor suggested that those administrations, such as former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, and William Barr, 
had volunteered to serve as Trump's enablers and that they should be publicly shamed a la Nixon and McCarthy. An ASU spokesperson told Campus Reform, James Garcia is a faculty associate. He was not acting at the capacity. We're not going to fire him because we agree with this stupid shit. Whole article on Iranian protesters sprecked American flag, but not U.S. college students with all the incidents. But I think we kicked that horse in the first segment. Shocking. This is not shocking. All the stories we do with these professors and groups on campus, this is expected. Shocking number of young Americans say other countries are better. Over 30 young Americans do not believe the United States is a great country in the world. In a recent Pew Research poll, 47% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning Americans between the ages of 19 and 29 <clears throat> prefer other countries over the U.S., while 19% of Republicans feel the same in the same age group. The poll also showed that 36% of this age group say other countries are greater than the U.S. The survey was conducted as part of a larger study by the Pew Research Center in September about a partnership as the dividing line in America's public public political attitudes. The findings show that within the age group of 19 to 29, 47% of adult Democrat and Democrat-leaning individuals believe that there are other countries better than the USA, while within the same group, 19, why don't they repeat themselves? That leaves only 53% of young Democrats who prefer the United States to any other country, while 81% of Republicans favor it. The same survey found that 36% of all young people believe it's great, leaving only 64 who believe in American exceptionalism. When a same age group was asked their opinion about America being a military superpower, 55% of Democrats in the same age group responded that they wouldn't mind if other countries could be as military powerful as the U.S. Even a sizable percent of Republicans said the same thing. But does that surprise you? I mean, it's day in and day out for these kids. Sorry, I put my cigar out. Not excusing them, but they hear it. America sucks. It's a piece of shit. We should not ever think our country's great. So why would you be surprised by that? Then we have our next segment, which also further enables that America's a fucking piece of shit. That's why we do liberal shit, gay shit, and everything's racist. Because it keeps pounding on them, America bad. So let's go to gay shit. Hey, hey, hey. Bow, bow, bow. Little pump in the cut. Hey, gay shit. This is fucking sick. RuPaul, new drag queen dramedy, dramedy, sexualizes 10-year-old child as a top. On Friday, January 10th, Netflix premiered a new show co-created by drag queen RuPaul titled AJ and the Queen. RuPaul is the host of a popular show, RuPaul Drag Race. AG and the Queen is about a 10-year-old child 
who accompanies Robert RuPaul, a gay male drag performer who goes by Ruby Red, as he travels across the country performing in drag shows and mostly gay bars. What could go wrong? The child, AJ, Izzy G, is the daughter of a drug-addicted prostitute. She wants the boy... She wants to be a boy because people leave boys alone. She hides her long hair under a boyish hat, and she does her best to look and act like a 10-year-old boy instead of a girl. The show is one long exposure of this child to sexualized adult situations in which she does not belong, all under the guise of the drag queen and the child bonding cross-country. During the voiceover in episode one, New York City, AJ says, since I didn't have a pushy mother, I was on my own. The idea of a domineering mother will repeat later in the show. Femininity is reduced to butts, boobs, and hips revolving around grown men's desire to regularly mimic, mock, and exaggerate female mannerisms. And as episode two, Pittsburgh AG criticizes this rainbow-covered shit show as they arrive at a gay bar in Pennsylvania. When the two go backstage, the club's drag queens proceed to engage in conversation. The scene ends with one of them calling little AJ a top, a term in homosexual male culture referring to the man who sexually penetrates the bottom. This is, I'm going to play it, but here's the dialogue. Madga. Well, look at what that pussy dragged in, and you have a child. I knew closing those Planned Parenthood clinics would create a problem. Ha ha. Girl, this is AJ. AJ, this is Megla, one of Pittsburgh's finest queens. We'll tell you a lot about the Pittsburgh scene. Maybe don't tuck in your junk in front of a mirror, <clears throat> in front of a minor. There are no minors in Pennsylvania, no matter what the president promised. Ha ha. Robert, AJ, this is Edia. She used to be pretty. Meg, I'm still pretty though, right? Robert, well, Alma Joy, wait till you, AJ, what's his problem? Robert, that's Alma Joy, and trust me, she may have a couple of nuts, but there is no joy. Robert, good to see you, Alma, Alma Joy, have we met? Robert, oh, okay, no high road, Michelle Obama taught us nothing. I'm not reading any of this fucking shit. Till the bottom. Eddie, okay, follow me, first kid I ever met, <coughs> first kid I ever met that's a top. No 10-year-old child should ever be referred to by sexualized position of top, not even the just note to Netflix. Pedophilia jokes are disturbing. In episode 5, Mount Juliet, Robert and AJ arrive in a small town of Tennessee. While in Tennessee, AJ sees a mother and daughter together and pines for the life other girls had with their mother brushing her hair. But of course, the show is seen through the lens of a homosexual agenda, so the mother is actually a pushy and domineering narcissist trying to control her daughter. As AJ looks through the traditional family window, Robert tells her that the daughter, who dislikes traditional girlish things, is most likely a lesbian. The LGBT agenda is not about live and let live. It's about delegitimizing de- heteronormative and locking children into sexual identities. The days of the girl being free to go through tomboy phases or boys simply look liking pretty girly things at some stage in childhood is long gone. The LGBT movement insists on projecting their own arrested psychosexual development onto all children regardless of the realities of those children's experience. This becomes crystal clear by episode 6, Little Rock, when AJ and Robert are hiding out in an RV park in Arkansas. The RV park vacationers are putting on a show of musical numbers from Greece. A boy at the park likes Robert's drag outfit and wants to dress up as Sandy for the show. The boy's gun-loving father reacts angrily when he sees his son as Sandy. Robert gives the dad a talk 
about how his son love for feminine clothes like dad love for guns and the boy's desire to wear them will only become more embedded as a child grows older. Eventually, the boy grabs a gun and tells his father he's dressing like Sandy whether dad liked it or not. Need I go on? The show is a an LGBT nightmare weaponizing children for big gay agenda. Viewing AJ and the Queen for Newsbusters left me enraged. This show should outrage all Americans. Well, look what the pussy drag did. <laughs> what, do you have a child? I knew closing those Planned Parenthood clinics would create a problem. <laughs> Girl, this is AJ. AJ, this is Magda, one of Pittsburgh's finest queens. <laughs> Which tells you a lot about the Pittsburgh scene. <laughs> uh, maybe don't tuck your junk in front of a minor. There are no minors in Pennsylvania, no matter what the president promised. <laughs> AJ, this is Edie. She used to be pretty. <laughs> I'm still pretty, though, right? Wait till she... Problem. That's all my joy. And trust me, she may have a couple of nuts, but there is no joy. Good to see you, Alma. Have we met? Oh, okay. No high road. Michelle Obama taught us nothing. Surprised to see you all the way out here on the sticks, Ruby. Wasn't that what you called us? I guess she'd know all about sticks. She has that big one stuck up her ass. You say that like that's a bad thing. What are you even doing in Pittsburgh? I thought you were opening your own New York club. Oh, I am. We're in the middle of huge renovations, and it is going to be major. Here you go, Edie. Oh, Ruby girl, there are burgers at the bar. Are you hungry? I am. Take me. Come on. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Follow me. First kid I ever met who's a top. They're fucking sick. They're just sick because they just don't. I mean, I, I've said it on the show. I think it's part of a push to brainwash kids and push what they feel on other people because they felt they were treated wrong by their parents or society or whatever. But it is a concerted effort to sexualize children. Queer Eye star to publish kid's book about non-binary guinea pig. Seemingly benign LGBTQ personality Jonathan Van Ness has devoted recent months to authoring children's books with not-so-benign themes. The Queer Eye star is doing this part to inducing transgenderism and gender confusion to children with a picture book about non-binary guinea pig. It's about time the Vanessa shade away from the spotlight. Logo News website newnownext.com reported that the resident grooming expert on Netflix Queer Eye Reboot has written a children's book about sexually confused guinea pig named Peanut. Come on, guys, it's cute, right? After all, that's not what's not to love about a book recounting the adventures of a gender non-binary guinea pig with big dreams, which is based on Vanessa's own childhood pet. 
Peanut goes for gold as a Venice later off-screen contribution to the gay mafia, but instead of communicating ideas to consenting adults, he goes straight for the most influenced and sensitive kids. It's arguably child abuse. Though, trying telling that to Van Ness, the LGBTQ-style guru came out as a non-binary and gender non-conforming in 2019, thinks his own confused experience growing up needs to be felt and embraced by a new generation. Growing up, the things that made me unique were not always celebrated, and I wanted to do something that would inspire kids to celebrate the things that made them special, he told People Magazine, adding, with that being said, I'm so excited to announce my next child book. That's, that's, that's fucking nice. That's just great. Then we have convicted sex offender says he identifies as an eight-year-old girl claims child porn found on computer is protected by First Amendment. Here we go with this map shit again. We want to warn you about the mature content in this next story. A Grand Rapids man with a history of sex crimes is back in prison for what was found on his home computer. 45-year-old Joseph Gobrick says the images police found were not child pornography. He says they were protected by his First Amendment right to free speech. 13 On Your Side's John Hogan has a closer look at the Kent County case that started nearly two years ago as an endangered person's investigation, John. Well, that's right. Joseph Gobrick argued that his drawings and computer images did not constitute child pornography. Now, during a recent court appearance, he even compared his felony child porn convictions to the horrors of Auschwitz. I have always been a hero girl, and even my drawings and fantasies, I am always been a hero girl. Bizarre statements in a case that was unique, to say the least. Joseph Goldbrick was arrested back in 2018 for child sexually abusive material found on his home computer. Now that came amid an investigation into a runaway 17-year-old girl from Ohio. He had a minor runaway at the house. During the search of Gobrick's home on Pine Avenue Northwest in Grand Rapids, police recovered child pornography from his computer. Gobrick contends it was not real child porn, but rather computer animated. And Gobrick says he identifies as an 8-year-old girl. Whenever we did this, there are adults having sex with me in an online forum as an eight-year-old girl. Kent County Assistant Prosecutor Dan Helmer says more than 50 illicit images were on Gobrick's computer. They included actual victims known to police. But that wasn't all. Even during the trial, the defendant continued to draw drawings, uh, provide them to me, saying, talking about raising babies in the Kent County Jail. Gobrick represented himself at a November bench trial. He said his activity was protected by the First Amendment, and he said he did not abuse children. I would no sooner have sex with a child than you would with a rattlesnake. It's just not safe. Judge Paul Denenfeld found him guilty of child sexually abusive commercial activity and using a computer to commit a crime. The uh, reality is that Mr. Gilbert, uh not just engaged in this conduct, that he obviously doesn't think that child uh, sexual abuse of material is wrong. Denenfeld sentenced Gobrick to between 10 and 20 years in prison. This isn't just virtual stuff. This is also real people uh, that are being uh, harmed. Now, Gobrick was recently transferred to state prison, and he is now on the Michigan Sex Offender Registry. Out there somewhere will be an article written that it's okay because once again we must understand these people 
It's not their fault. They have a disease. And as long as they don't touch them, there's nothing wrong. We say that on the show. That is the next to go to the LGBTQEIEIO plus plus AP map will be attached. It just will be attached. To kick, stay on our child stuff, jailbait, team drama cheerleads, statutory rape. By the end of the third episode of USA's Dare Me, it's perfectly clear that they may not be any good guys in the dark high school cheerleading drama. All the teens are either abusing each other, abusing alcohol, covering up for coach affair, getting older men to perform sex acts on them. Center stage is Beth, aptly described in January 12th's episode, Surrender at Discretion as a Hellion, although it can't be easy to be on the same cheerleading team as her younger half-sister, the product of an affair between her father and a neighbor. Beth's best friend is Addie, the more level-headed of the group, but if Addie's babysitting, their coach's baby seems sweets, it's tainted by how it's so that the coach, Colette Willa Fitzgerald, can have an affair with a high school flame. Will Mosley, who is also a Marine recruiter at a high school where Colette coaches. Beth is clearly trouble when she's not beating up on her half-sister or running her mouth. She's smoking cigarettes and drinking. While the rest of the Chilean squad is a party thrown by Colette, Beth stays in to have a cigarette and a drink while their mother is upstairs. Although she's not home alone and walks her older boy toy, Corporal Kurtz, with a frank discussion of what they're planning on doing and where. And it's just child abuse. It's just everywhere. And its I don't understand why it's written in. I don't know if it's done to push an agenda. But it's frankly very fucking sick. It's just fucking sick. Time for Everything's Racist. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Um, You are Jewish, and it's easy to call out, I think... Uh, white nationalism when you see it and anti-Semitism with someone with a MAGA hat or on the alt-right. But Democrats, in my opinion, have been a lot more reticent to call it out on their side. As the first Jewish president, what would you do here in New York to help heal, but also in our country nationally? Because again, this is a this is not a partisan issue, and for some reason, Democrats on the left seem to have a harder time calling it out. I, I hope that's not true. This certainly, it some, looks like it sometimes. Yeah, and and a lot of it on campus, mm-hmm. which is just an outrage mm-hmm. because in campus you would think that people understand campuses are a place to be inclusive and to let people say what they want to say but not disparage others with anti-semitic or anti-anything remarks um, I, I think that it comes from the top in the end if the president of the united states said we're not going to tolerate this stop it in your family if your mother or father said that when you were a young kid, you would have stopped it. Mm-hmm. The mayor, the governor, everybody. It, we have a responsibility to set the moral tone and to tell people that are doing something wrong to stop. I thought that was pretty good. That's McCain pushing Bloomberg. Why is it okay for Democrats to be this way? Oh, because they're on the same team. Got it. New York Times uses black Republican as punching bag against divisive racist, racist GOP. David Marches, staff writer and talk columnist the New York Times, got some things off his chest during a challenging interview with black Republican Representative Will Hurd of Texas. 
He clearly used the interview as his own personal anti-GOP gripe session. He introduced his horde as the only black Republican in the House and pondered if he could help forge a more inclusive future for Republicans. Marchez's questions, to which Heard gave mild, moderate-sounding answers, almost unanimously tilted left. You're a moderate conservative, but your voting record is the House aligns with Trump's position about 80% of the time. No one would call him a moderate anything, so what does moderate mean to you? The term moderate may not fit him, but President Trump is certainly not a conservative when it comes to government spending and trade issues and citing the 80% of the time alignment to suggest Churn is an... Heard as an ideological lockstep with Trump is a misnomer. After all, opposing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonio Scalia voted the same way 70% of the time in 2014. Texas is a purple state, in part because of the state's rising Hispanic population. Is there any concern on your part that your approach, the success you've had in something with demographic, is undermined by broader, divisive Republican rhetoric? This has never happened to a Democrat. I'm not sure I fully understand the distinction you just made between showing people that the Republican Party cares and its policies. Isn't it possible that Republican branding is not that great among the demographics you identify because the party pursues politics and policies that alienate voters? Next one. But what you're fundamentally talking about is positioning or messaging. Do you think that, for example, the Republican Party being the party generally in favor of stricter voter ID laws that have a disproportionate negative effect on communities of colors is as much a hindrance to the party's ability to attract voters from those same communities as messaging? (laughs) They just say it like it's factual. It's just not. The other thing that comes up often when people write about you, besides you being a moderate, is that you're the one black Republican in the House. I have two questions about it. The first is whether the fact makes you feel any particular responsibility. The second is how you understand your party being the same party that politics, that's the political home to Steve King and Stephen Miller. It's one thing to make somebody cringe. It's another to be credibly accused of espousing white supremacy. And the last one, what goes through your head when you hear your colleagues refer to the Russia hoax? Showing ideological consistency, Marchez also went after liberal talk show host Bill Maher from the left in a September 2019 interview. That's that's the New York Times. Because they then go into, New York Times demands total shift in movies people like to meet race and sex quotas. David, uh, reporters Brooke Barnes and Nicole Sperling lamented the Academy Award nominations the Oscar leaders and the Overlooked, with 11 Joker scores, the most nomination. The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 1917, each received 10 nomination. Black actors and actresses were largely overlooked. Despite a plethora of diverse films competing for the Oscar attention this year, the 9,000-member Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science largely maintained its traditional point of view, handing out the most nominations to four very male, very white movies, Joker, which portrays the DC comic villain as sharing the psychological traits of a real-life mass shooters, led all films 11 nominations. That's because it was a fantastic movie. Me and the wife just watched it. I am by no means into that genre. But kiss my white ass if I wasn't just locked on the screen. He's a fruitcake climate guy, but he can act his ass off. I mean, I always kind of knew it because his portrayal of being, I want to fuck my sister and Gladiator was creepy, and this dude just gives off the creeps. I mean, big time. Pyle Buchanan's carpetbagger column, The Big Surprises and Glaring Stubs, 
made a radical case for quotas. After the British organization BAFTA nominated 20 all-white acting nominees last week, pundits feared that the Oscars might pull a similar move. This crisis was averted, though, just barely when the Harriet star Cynthia Elviro landed an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. This article asks, Crisis? Buchanan actually previewed his outrage last week, squeezing as much of the made-up controversy as possible after Oscar season's wildest week, a troubling takeaway. As the field continues to narrow, female filmmakers and actors of color appear increasingly sidelined. Um, never mind. The rest of it's just the same old fucking shit. I mean, there were so many articles. Hashtag Hollywood so racist. Media turns on Oscar for white and male nomination. It was all over Twitter. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, th- there's actually, like, South Korean director Bong Joon-ho, Parasite, and Taki Wakaki, Half Mori, are, are examples. They did pick films, but listen, maybe these voters are what other voters are, like, <clears throat> for president. It actually has to be a good movie. It just doesn't have to check the internex- intersectionality fucking scorecard, you goops. To liberal shit, and this was all over Twitter during the debate. This, once again, as in Iran and siding with our enemy, this is also the Democratic Party. They fucking hate Christians. Come on down! You're the next contestant on Liberal Shit! I'm Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. Tweets to this, Ronald Reagan's not afraid of burning in hell, apparently. What the fuck was that? I got it from Matt Best that I just absolutely love this. And it literally was an atheist commercial. CNN promoted it. But a Christian commercial would never get on CNN. That's all you need to know. You would never see a Christian commercial stand for the flag or any of that shit. But you'll have atheists. College defends artwork with torn Bible pages and flames and references to Satan. I'm not just making this shit up. It's just not a theory, folks. Students at the University of Southern Maine, whose class was allegedly instructed to alter a book to create something new, decided to use a Bible, tear its pages, and paint them to look like flames and add satanic images covering the face of Jesus. Todd Starnes, University of Southern Maine, defends an art display that includes a desecration, desecrated Bible. Would they defend a Koran covered in pig's blood? Good question, Todd. After the piece by Raleigh Harris was displayed out of classroom, one girl who was part of a church gathering at a Wish, Wish Camper Center noted the piece, prompted her father, Charlie Flynn, to slam the display, asserting this is someone's sacred text being desecrated, destroyed, and displayed in a public place. I couldn't help but feel no one's sacred, no one's sacred text should be cre- treated that way. <clears throat> I think it's very inappropriate and repugnant. Harris explained regarding his piece title called Unholy Bible, Very Revised Standard Edition, I was thinking a lot about questioning authority in general. People's question different types of authority. But for some 
reason religious authority seems too taboo to question, so I thought I would give it a shot. He said the class instructor pointed out to the class assignment called The Instruction of Visual Book can engender plagiarism, so Harris picked a book in the public domain. Oh, nice excuse. Harris, who says he's an atheist, claimed that although the Bible and Christianity are important to some people, a lot of Christianity harms people. Yeah, they understood the negative reaction. The only reaction people are responding to it negatively is everyone has their own sort of morals, and no one's morals are right or really wrong. Oh, really? Yet you atheists enforce yours on all Christians. Everyone thinks their own way, and not everyone line up. I don't think my piece is harming anyone. I'm just making people think. I think when it starts harming someone, then maybe it should be considered not great. Josh, Jared Cash, Vice President for Enrollment Management and Marketing University, stated the university supports freedom of speech for all students, affirmed and upheld by the Board of Trustee Policy 212. Policy states the university support free speech so long as it does not violate the law, defame specific individuals, genuinely threaten or harm others, or violate privacy or confidential crime, confidentiality requirements. Although the university system greatly values civility and expects community members to share in the responsibility for maintaining a climate of mutual respects, demand for civility and mutual respect will not be used to justify restricting discussions, blah, blah, fucking blah. Fink concluded, if I saw a Koran with pig blood on it, I would certainly call someone or a Torah with unclean food on it. This is a Bible with Satan's image put over Jesus' image and around Christmas time. I don't understand why that would be viewable in an institution of higher learning. This is USM, a school that services the community. Glenn Petruzzi, minister for the Casco Bay Church of Christ, echoed, Freedom of speech is entitled, but when the space is shared with all different types of people of different faiths and backgrounds, we have to consider what that will bring about. It's a hard one. But HBO, they're on the case. New Pope, same old religious hatred. Got a theme going, folks. It was a lot of it. just fell out today. Not wanting to be outdone by Netflix, HBO presents its own anti-religion series, The New Pope. This companion series to HBO's previous blasphemous and slanderous and all-around unpleasant series, The Young Pope, is set to make up for the nearly three-year absence of terribleness. With the first episodes, any indication we're only getting started. January 13th season premiere picks up nine months after the Young Pope finale with Young Pope Pius the the 8th, Jude Law, still in a coma after his heart attack. Fortunately for him, he's still attended to by various nuns who spend their free time dancing sexually with each other in front of the cross. One pleasures herself and the Pope comatose body while being illuminated by a neon cross. Only ten minutes in, and that's by me one of the worst shows of 2020. While this is happening, the rest of the Holy See attempt to improve their self-image. Being the corrupt den of snakes and scoundrels that is supposed to be, the members of the clergy decide to vote on a new pope, despite the current one still being alive. Naturally, some figures believe themselves to be destined for the position, especially Cardinal Secretary of State Cardinal Angelo Velio. No pretense is made about him wanting the position for power, but then again, all the cardinals seem in the system for themselves. Even some of their prayers and shows the new pope are mostly about how he could change the 2,000-year-old religion for praying for a pope who allows priests to marry to one who smiles at homosexuality. <clears throat> all of this and more happens in only first hour of the new pope. With eight more episodes to go, only the Lord himself knows how low it'll get, and it'll get all sorts of awards, just like the first one. Because it's all about shitting on Christianity. The show, it's so fucking ingrained in the left. 
this is the dumbest shit I've ever fucking heard. And I've heard a lot of dumb shit on news and social media nuggets of this show. Student government votes to ban Israeli hummus to be more inclusive. Now, I'll break it down. Israel did not create hummus. It's a Middle Eastern food. But theirs gotta go for inclusivity. Student Senate at Dixon College of Pennsylvania passed a ban against Sabra hummus on campus as part of the BDS. Yeah. All about BDS. Where are you at, Bloomberg? And the student resolution titled a resolution to endorse and banning of Sabra hummus from Devil's Den. Students moved in this... What does it fucking say? Sorry, I lost a fucking... Two... Cease, I'm sorry. The sale of Sabra hummus on campus once the existing product sold out. Students argue that such a ban would follow the community commitment to sustainability and inclusivity. Devil Den's a popular campus dining location. Sabra hummus is a brand partially owned by Strauss Group, which is company and financially and morally supports the Golani and Gavadi Bridge and IDF, stated the resolution. These brigades of IDF commit human rights abuses against the Palestinians. Yeah, they, they do not. And they violate international law. I just paraphrased the whole paragraph of shit they got off a bumper sticker. A second alternative version of the resolution title was read weeks later and argued that the original proposal did not consider the whole community effect. The proposal of banning Sabra hummus as it is one of the only kosher and vegan options offered on campus since the campus dining hall lost its kosher certification. Second resolution raised concerns of rising anti-Semitism and proposed that Sabra be replaced with other kosher hummus in the interest of maintaining kosher students' ability to feed themselves. Despite the student's decision, the college took a firm stance against boycott. Dickinson encourages students to voice their opinions and effect change through our government structure. We are pleased that the discussion about this issue at Student Senate meeting was civil and that the competing opinions are articulated. Dixon clarified his statement on the matter. As an institution that deeply values global diversity and civil discord and debate, Dixon opposes this boycott. In 2014, we rejected the call for American Studies Association to boycott Israel University and instead maintain our ongoing relationship with three Israeli institutions. We reject the current call for boycott on the same ground. Students have committed to continue with an open dialogue and active listening. They demonstrated during the discussion. We're confident that as they grapple with this and other complex issues, they will continue to seek out and consider multiple perspectives and draw on the critical thinking and analysis skills they're developing here at Dixon, which isn't happening because it's clearly obvious their teachers are filling their head with bumper stickers. Yeah. So on our gun thing, which I haven't been covering a lot other than quit hits, but here's another one. So he wants to bring in the U.N. in Virginia, coon man, old coon man Northen, blackface guy who believes in live birth abortions. Don't, don't forget that. It's very important. So now he signs an emergency order to ban guns in Capitol Square. It's not what state law says, but what he's doing. Northam, a Democrat, plans to declare a temporary emergency this week, banning all weapons from Richmond Capitol Square in advance of a large pro-gun rally scheduled for next week, according to AP. Gun rights advocates have been demonstrating a large number since a Democrat-controlled legislator revealed intention to pass numerous gun control laws. So once again, Antifa can burn down cities, pro-fucking-death people can do whatever they want. 
But now we're going to restrict the ability to open carry, which is the law. Because it doesn't fit in with our shit. Okay. That doesn't break out all of hypocrisy. Brian Seltzer is all comes in because it goes really well with all this. That's why I threw it here. HBO just announced something I've been working on for a couple years. A documentary titled After Truth. Disinformation and the cost of fake news. So now HBO's on board. The film will premiere on TV and online this March, directed by A. Rossi. After Truth is about the impact that disinformation, conspiracy theories, and false news stories have on the average citizen. As seen through the eyes of the purveyors, the targets, the victims, and the experts who track it all. Full description here. Not going to the full description. Brian Seltzer, again, full circle with A. Rossi. Ten years ago, I was one of the people featuring his documentary, Page One, inside the New York Times. Now we're back together. But I'm behind the scenes as an executive producer. Can't wait for you to see the finished product. If you can't see the incestuousness between all of our media, you're just... Oh, Jesus. He tweeted this. In the age of social media, this eye-opening documentary examines the rising phenomenon of fake news in the U.S., the impact disinformation, conspiracy theories, and false news have on the average citizen. The film focuses on several high-profile made-up news stories in recent years and real-world consequences, including the infamous Pizzagate case, the disinformation campaign that influenced the 2016 presidential election, the Jane Helm conspiracy, and others. Drawing from exclusive right access and interviews of a variety of experts, all liberal, as well as purveyors and targets of misinformation, the documentary sheds lights on how post-truth culture has become an increasingly dangerous part of the global information environment. Directed by and executive producer Brian Seltzer. BT. This should be good. These are the... This is where I'm talking. I throw it in the middle of all this shit that never makes your media. Jeopardy! Walks back problematic Israeli question after Palestinians go crazy. Producers have responded to online uproar for Palestinian sympathizer over a controversial in-game question. On January 10th, long-running game series Jeopardy featured a question about the location of the famous church, which is believed to be the mark of the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Of course, that church is Bethlehem. The same reality that host Alex Trebek affirmed on air. However, pro-Palestinian or terrorist Islamist took issue with that, and the show producers have since come out claiming the question was a mistake. Producers released an apology for the controversy, claiming that the question was supposed to be scrapped from the full live version. During the segment, the inadvertent clue to the $200 question was, where is that church built in the 300, built in the 300s AD, the Church of the Nativity? Variety promoted that contestant Katie Needle responded with, What is Palestine? But her answer was ruled incorrect, which rival contestant Jack McGuire said, What is Israel? Of course, woke anti-Israel Twitter users went nuts, blasted the game show for apparent pro-Israel stance. Deputy Director of Arab American Institute Omar Batter tweeted, Unacceptable! Bethlehem is the Palestinian territories, which is really illegally occupied! Banner added, Jeopardy owes an apology for endorsing Israel's universally condemned illegal takeover of Palestinian lands. Arab American Institute founders James Zogsby chimed in, 
Uh, the Jeopardy judgment was an outrage and an insult to history, reality, the thousands of oppressed Palestinians. Ayyab Oyeb, policy director of the American Arab anti or those fucking terrorists, tweeted, Hey Jeopardy, the Church of Nativity is in Palestine. How was her answer wrong? You should correct this or make a statement. Embarrassing and wrong on many levels. Sure, whatever they say. But of course, an official Palestinian state has never been recognized by Israel nor the United States, though many Palestinians live in the region. They have no official claim to it. Variety also detailed that Bethlehem, the town in which the church is, is on the West Bank, saying the West Bank has been occupied by Israel since the Six-Day War in 67 and is home to 2.6 Palestinians. (coughs) 2.6 million. On Monday, 13th, Jeopardy! producers released a statement clarifying that Israel-Palestinian question was replaced with another that was supposed to air with the intention of getting away from the controversial subject. In the process of taping the clue, the built-in that 300 AD, the Church of Nativity, we became aware that the clue was flawed as written and determined an acceptable response would be problematic. <clears throat> in accordance with our rules and in the interest of fairness, we voided the clue and threw it out, though the Israel question broadcast by human error. The replacement clue was supposed to be the Basilica of Our Lady Guadalupe, what is Mexico. Strange, though, that an American network game show would make a mistake in airing the legitimate question and answer. Perhaps it was an error, but why? Does the media really value the overblown assertions of Palestinian activists, or I like to say terrorists, over the fact that Israel lays claim to the area? Anybody? I mean, what the fuck, Chuck? But the left, once again, who believes everything they say is right, are totally impervious to what we really see. I mean, what normal Americans see. And it's closing out a religious segment. It really nails it with this tweet. The Washington Post. The Women's March sparked a resistance. Three years later, it's a movement struggling to find relevance. Well, it's struggling because they're a bunch of anti-Semitic fucking Islamists. But the Washington Post's not going to say that. Twitter did. In multiple reasons. People did say other things. Like the first one. Unemployment for women is an all-time low. Most of us think abortion through the ninth month is beyond the pale. They went away overboard on Kavanaugh. The next one is what I said. Oh, yeah. And the anti-Semitism. So pretty much irrelevant. I think the relevance thing ties to the rest of the extremist left. More people are rolling their eyes and waking up from screeching sanctimonious lunatics. The next person. One, women are politically monolithic and didn't feel this movement representative them. And that's what we purported on the show. They didn't allow pro-life people. They didn't allow normal women. You had to be an extremist. Two, anti-Semitism isn't chic. And three, like other demographics, ours is more prosperous and succeeding under this economy than in years past. Yeah, maybe don't get anti-Semites to lead your movement if you want to be taken seriously on civil rights. Understand, every one of those fucking tweets came from women. Not men. I purposely grabbed women. But you don't get that as we go into women's stuff. Here's Julia. Don't say Merry Christmas to me, motherfucker. I off. Still thinking about the Warren Bernie squabble, and I have a question to people who have accused Warren of lying. Isn't that the lesson of me, too, in the last few years, that we believe women and don't call them liars? The entire world. A. Women lie, and Warren is the biggest liar on the fucking planet. 
to the NBC pushing pro fucking abortion. How'd it go? Good, I think. It was a good shoot, pretty black and white. Adam, I told you to stay back. I had it under control. Kim, I I gave you an order over the D.C. He could have shot you. He could have shot you, too. But that's not the point. That is the point. He had a gun on you. I came in to back you up. No, you came in because I'm pregnant. Adam, I'm a cop. If I tell you to stay back, I mean stay back. I heard an altercation over the radio. I heard him tuning you up. What did you want me to do? You want me to leave, grab a coffee, hope it all works out for you? No, 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 I get it. Hold on. I get it. I totally get it. I just don't like what I'm getting. You want to tiptoe around, that's fine. But things are different now. You're pregnant with my kid. My kid. And so, when I heard him working you, I did what I had to do to make sure that the both of you were okay. And if that pisses you off, I don't really care. God damn. All I've been doing is trying to help you. That's what I've been doing since we found out, trying to help you. Adam, I don't want your help. I know that you're the father, but I'm the one having the baby, okay? I'm the one who has to change your whole life. I have to put my career on hold, and I have to hope and pray that it's still there when I get back. Do you think that's easy and fun? This may not be what you want to hear, but we're not together, so this isn't going to fall on us the same. I get to do this part, this pregnancy part, my way, on my terms. That's it. Hey... I like it when you come down to my neighborhood. You sound a little off on the phone, everything. You went to the doctor? Alone? Yeah. Sorry. I I wanted to go alone. I, I, sorry. It's okay. Can I see? says that these things are just like fuzzy clouds and you can't make anything out but that's definitely our baby yeah I heard the heartbeat really yeah like I'm I'm really having a baby (laughs) yeah You know, at some point, we're going to have to talk about how this is all going to work. You know, what it's going to mean for us, what it'll look like. I know. And I just... Hey, 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 hey. Hey. When we were together, you know, we always said that we would... More and more you see this DACA, gay shit. Jesus Christ, it's in every fucking thing. But this one isn't, and this is just like the religious one. Abortion is normal. Media praise emergency pro-abort art exhibit. Pro-abort. You're making art for killing babies. Our democracy is dying. Russia, Ukraine has floundered. Legal abortions may not be long for this world. In this dire time for progressives, a disgusting pro-abortion art installation must give them comfort. The Guardian and Bloomberg News praise the latest abomination in modern art as a necessary balm to the country's anti-abortion stigma 
and a great way to raise funds for the child-killing procedure. <clears throat> the Guardian describes abortion as normal and emergency art show as an ambitious multidisciplinary display meant to create an inclusive and emphatic entry point into the conversation, dismantling the stigma around abortion and working as an urgent call to action. What call to action? It's legal. What the fuck are you people talking about? Nobody wants to restrict it. They did it on purpose to get the court to fucking talk about it and get restrictions on just when you can. Third trimester. No. A major plurality, over 70% believe that. Uh, Don't ever let them tell you you care about making baby killings safe, legal, and rare. They want it about a commonplace as using a toaster oven. As the outlet explained, the two-part exhibition was co-created by Jamie Wahil and Rebecca Pauline Jumpol, if you got a hyphen name, you're a douchebag, and features work from a diverse group of artists addressing a variety of reproductive right issues. We have people from all gender identities between two spaces, Wahil claimed, because having a trans woman sign off on abortion is just as important to procedure itself. Also, proceeds dragged in by the macabre art go to Planned Parenthood and Lefty Activist Group downtown for democracy. Of course, per the usual reproductive art of intersectional pro-abort feminists, most of the pieces in the collection range from tone-deaf to depraved. One of the pieces consisted of a collection of t-shirts depicting the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove with a text reading, Thank God for Abortion. Another was a menagerie of vials and bottles containing blood meant to act as totem for the sacredness of the human body. Oh, the irony. The Guardian current impression is the U.S. political discord on reproductive rights is already at a crossroad. Downtown for Democracy member Gina Nani complained that these are those chipping away at reproductive rights and they never stop. And the U.K. outlet affirmed that the refreshing grassroots installation addresses the immediacy of the problem. Bloomberg News video platform Quick Take did a story on the exhibit. It's going to play it, but it doesn't really say a lot. January 14, claiming it wants to spark conversation about women's reproductive rights in the U.S. Sure, nothing denotes conversation like t-shirts that read, Thank God for Abortion. The video also includes while he claims that the obvious mission of the exhibit is to fight and ensure that our reproductive rights are maintained. <clears throat> they repeated it since January 2019. 58 abortion restrictions passed in the U.S. and 25 new abortion bans were signed into law. The state of Alabama banned blah, blah, blah. In June 2019, 35% of Americans were opposed to abortion rights compared to 44 in January 2018. The next clip then features artist Marilyn Minter making the gross statement. Some people think the title is provocative, for, but honestly, women have been getting abortions for millennia. Yes. Thank God for abortions. Imagine getting behind that and then thinking you have a convincing platform for 2020. Yeah. If you ever put something out like this that was... <clears throat> well, they have the pictures of the aborted bodies. Oh, my God. It just It would never happen. London Hughes is a female, and then we move on to climate change. British comedian. This is what she believes. LOL. People are still confused. If you were born a white person in Britain, you automatically have white privilege. Doesn't matter if your family broke. You were still born with more power and opportunity than a person of color. Says, if that offends you, hon, but it's pretty great deal. She then said, but you can't comprehend that being born 
white in a predominantly white country that was built on colonialism isn't beneficial, then you've chosen to be ignorant. Google privilege and talk to your local or brown person if you have any. Conversation is key, guys. It's just like that fucking bitch that talked about abortion. <clears throat> Problem is, one Twitter person summed it the fuck up. She's not white, but she's enjoying a pretty successful career in the UK. Same can't be said for broke white people. Few the person of color. To climate, CNN touts climate alarmists blaming skeptics for wildfires. So, because you don't believe the world's going to end in 12 months, your thoughts caught Australia on fire. Okay. Todd Stern, he was the lead U.S. negotiator for the Paris Agreement under former President Obama. Todd, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Jake. What would it mean if the U.S. were to pull out entirely from the agreement? It would be a huge big deal. I mean, it would it would fundamentally undermine the international regime. Uh, this is, a re- first of all, you can't solve climate change without an international regime because it's a quintessentially global problem. As President Trump wraps up his first year in office, his own government scientists announced that 2017 was one of the hottest years on record. The White House, of course, isn't doing much about it, even though scientists say humans are primarily the reason why. Scientists at NASA ranking 2017 the second warmest year since they started measuring this, only behind 2016, using a different methodology, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, ranked 2017 third behind 2016 and 2015. All the scientists agree the rise was mostly caused by carbon dioxide emissions. This is that new normal, that unpredictability, the large explosive growth fires. Sadly, scenes like this are becoming the new normal worldwide as temperatures rise due to climate change. In our Earth Matters series, the war President Trump has been waging on signature Obama-era environmental policies. The most recent, a proposal to overturn requiring automakers to build more fuel-efficient cars. In our Earth Matters series today, Vice President Pence will visit the National Hurricane Center tomorrow. Perhaps while he's there, he could check in with the scientists of NOAA on the climate emergency. Those scientists say it is a, quote, threat to the health and well-being of the American people. Here's the Vice President yesterday. Do you think it's a threat? Man-made climate emergency is a threat. I I think the answer to that is going to be based upon the science. Well, the science says yes. I'm asking you what you think. There's many in the science that... The science community in your own administration at at NOAA, uh, at the the DNI, they all say it's a threat. A State Department analyst resigned, according to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, after the White House removed portions of his June congressional testimony, which included evidence that the climate crisis is a threat to U.S. national security. The State Department told CNN it does not comment on personnel matters. As part of our Earth Matters series, CNN's climate correspondent Bill Weir is looking into an economic as well as an environmental threat to communities across this country, what's known as climate gentrification. In our world lead now, the Americans hit hardest by the climate crisis right now might be the ones who feed all of us, farmers. A report out today from the United Nations warns that climate change is having a devastating impact on agriculture. And on top of it all comes the latest alarming report from the IPCC, which finds that growing food from India to Iowa will only get harder as the climate gets harsher. We're going to see by uh, uh, mid-century, by current projections, that our number of days above 90 degrees is going to rise from about 17 days per year above 90 degrees in, in a Des Moines. That'll be up more like 50 to 70. 
Dorian is a historically harsh storm, the strongest to ever hit the Bahamas, as far as we know, one of the slowest moving hurricanes on record, second strongest winds in the Atlantic Basin ever. While scientists cannot definitively say that the climate crisis is making these hurricanes stronger, there is evidence that warming ocean temperatures are contributing to their intensity. It's all part of our Earth Matters series. When it comes to severe weather, we should point out that hurricanes are, are not the most glaring example of how climate change is, is contributing to extreme weather. There are other, much more stark uh, extreme weather examples. Exactly. Things like extreme rainfall events, uh, heat waves, or even this more gradual sea level rise and how it uh, makes uh, coastal communities more vulnerable to certain weather hazards by bringing the ocean closer to people. Tonight, CNN is going to host an unprecedented town hall on the climate crisis with 10 of the Democratic presidential candidates. Each one is going to put out their own plans to try to fight this emergency. One world leader who knows this topic well and is back in familiar territory, former Vice President Al Gore. Thanks, Bill. Great Thank to you. see you. Thank you, you too, for always. coming outside. What do you make of the lack of American leadership uh, here today? Well, I, I think that um, to focus on the good news side of it, uh, Donald Trump being the face of global climate denial actually is motivating the kind of uprising. It's been over a decade since uh, he tried to sound the alarm at climate Paul Revere with an inconvenient truth. And uh, after, of course, a lot of fanfare, Nobel Prize for the IPCC scientists behind those initial alarming reports, very little has been done. Uh it used to be global warming, right. right? Actually, it's always been climate change and global warming. As a scientist, we tend to use the term climate change because there's all sorts of changes that are happening on the planet, including global average temperatures rising over the long term. And that latter part is called global warming. The president has a theory as to why global warming isn't used as much in his view. That wasn't working too well because it was getting too cold all over the place. It is not getting too cold. Global average temperature for the Earth is warming, and that's a fact. Take a look at this heat map from NASA showing rising temperatures from 1884 to 2016. According to researchers, 16 of the 17 warmest years on record have occurred within the last 20 years. And lastly, how about those changing ice caps? Uh, the ice caps were going to melt. They were going to be gone by now, but now they're setting records. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, last year saw the second smallest annual sea ice area on record. And these images from NASA show how quickly the ice is, in fact, disappearing. In our Earth Matters series today, 18 million acres of land, roughly the size of the entire state of South Carolina, burned across Australia as wildfires continue to rage there. 27 people have been killed, 2,000 homes destroyed, as many as 1 billion animals have been impacted by the fires, according to experts, millions of those animals killed. And in Sydney, Australia, 30,000 people marching in a climate change protest. And as CNN's Will Ripley reports, with their country burning, Australians are demanding action. Fighting for change. Tens of thousands spilled onto the streets of Sydney. Australians living a fire nightmare, calling on the government to wake up. It's heartbreaking, you know. It's, it's, our, it's our doing. If we kill Mother Earth, what have we got? 
Unprecedented bushfires, some of the worst on record, have protesters in nine Australian cities demanding drastic action, demanding their leaders do more to tackle climate change before it's too late. Australia's devastation only expected to get worse. The inferno fueled by an historic drought and record-breaking heat wave. Once you add the influence of the human-emitted greenhouse gases, we're likely to see those conditions once every eight years. Many of these protesters blame their Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Morrison, a longtime advocate for coal mines and fossil fuels, a vital part of Australia's economy. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the Treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. But many are afraid. Four months of fires, unprecedented in their intensity and destruction. See, what's happening is we hit 2020 and it was a tipping point, folks. Because a lot of the bullshit they said is just like Al Gore all over again and the stuff we played from the 80s. We're all supposed to be underwater. There's not supposed to be any fucking... Uh, glaciers left in America, and now people are like, hey, what the fuck? So then real scientists, and I do that with air quotes, come out, and they they literally put out some information that, okay, this was all based on worst-case scenario. And now we're on the other side of worst-case scenario. Sorry for spitting like that. And we we've improved. Things are great. We're still in trouble. We need to work on stuff, but... It was all based on we didn't reduce carbon footprints up before. And, oh, we can't have that. So now we got to double, triple down because we're getting proved to be what it is. It's just a voting block. It is a scheme. The Green New Deal, as we covered in depth on the show, is just to take over and make the country liberal the way they want it. Everybody gets a pot, a chicken, and a house. Fuck you for your individual successes, yada, yada. And it's just crazy. They need the cudgel, folks. Worst scenario for climate change doesn't look realistic, says Bloomberg colonists. You know, it's a cold day in hell when a liberal outlet like Bloomberg opinion is critiquing the left's climate Armageddon. Here's another article. Noah Smith explained how the worst case for climate change doesn't look realistic. December 23rd op-ed summarized findings from the UN Intergovernment Plan Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, and critiqued one of the several climate scenarios. He focused on the dire scenario called RCP 8.5, which implies that the planet will warm by an average of 5 degrees Celsius by 2100 an absolute catastrophic civilization-ending level of warming. But Smith noted a growing chorus of climate scientists and energy policy analysis has begun to question whether the dreaded scenario should even be taken seriously. Smith wrote that the doomsday scenario assumes that after a brief flirtation with natural gas and renewable energy, the world returns to fueling industrialized primary with coal, which isn't happening. You know, we've got scrubbers and all sorts of shit. Smith said this outcome was vanishing unlikely. His reasoning was threefold. There's not that much accessible coal in the ground. Burning coal creates air pollution, giving countries an additional incentive to reduce it, and dropping prices for renewables. Smith said that if renewables get cheaper, it will become economically economical to retire existing coal and gas plants. In turn, IPCC's common-sided doomsday scenario looks like a rash flight of imagination. The Cato Institute gave a detailed critique of the IPCC's doomsday scenario in 2018 arguing that it's obsolete 
It was obsolete when it was first published in the journal Climate Change by Rahi et al. in 2011. By then, the shale gas revolution was underway, as can be seen from the plot below of shale gas production, Cato concluded. Cato continued, by 2011, abundant shale gas has begun a wholesale displacement of coal from electrical generation, increasing natural gas portion of our energy portfolio, and decreasing the coal. But of course, Smith couldn't let this entire column be controversial, given his outlet's liberal violence, and proceeded with to still push alarmism. Now for the bad news, 2.5 degrees of warming will still be catastrophic for many people and countries, and 3 degrees even more. Instead of embarking on a fool's errand of trying to dismantle capitalism, governments should utilize the combined resources of the public and private sector. They should retire all coal plants as quickly as possible, steadily reduce natural gas usage, and convert to all electrical vehicles. Buildings need to be retrofitted to use car. Oh, Jesus Christ, here we go. We're just back into fucking Green New Deal. Yeah, great. But you gotta keep going. I mean, you gotta keep the thing going. Critics' Choice Award, Meal Goes Vegan for Climate Change. Amazing message. We talked about the Golden Globe already. Critics' Choice served a plant-based meal during the ceremony airing on the CW January 12th, watched by nobody. Yokin uh, Phoenix, I can never say his name, won the Best Actor Award for Joker. During his acceptance speech, he said, thank the award for going plant-based and trying to offset our carbon footprint, even though he admitted he flew there. Later in the show, Tay Diggs described the meal and the re- reason for the decision to go with the menu of beef, vegan burgers and vegetarian burritos to shine a light on an issue of sustainability and climate change. If you look around, you'll see that we are serving food to our guests right now. Critics' Choice has partnered up with The Counter and Baja Fresh to provide delicious plant-based burgers. That's not a, that's not a statement. Nobody says that. I've had Boca Burgers... They're good, they're not delicious, but you know you're not eating beef. Granted, I haven't t- done the Burger King thing, and I don't plan on doing it. <clears throat> Baja Fresh provide delicious plant-based burgers and vegetarian burritos to help shine a light on the issue of sustainability and climate change. We'll be back with more awards right after a short break. The awards for the best limited series went to When They See Us, and Deva Daverney, executive producer, director, and writer, accepted the award. She made a point of telling the audience that in this country, most specifically, the poor and innocent go to jail while the rich, guilty go free. What's an award show without some good old-fashioned America sucks? Perhaps Ava should have took a look at what's going on in Iran. <clears throat> I'm not going to read what she said, but it goes on. Um, <clears throat> they stand for justice. They shine bright like the gems that they always were, but we never saw. If you watched their story and felt something in that moment, I invite you to consider doing something. There's no right thing to do. You do what you feel, what you are, but don't let your anger and sadness be all. Cases like this are happening all over the world, in this country, most specifically on our watch. People who are poor and innocent are behind bars, while rich and guilty walk free and gain power. The late poet Audre Lorde said, When we speak, we are afraid our words will not be welcome. When we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak. The annual award season is just getting started. There will be plenty more, especially with the Oscars. But I, I'm going to preface the next article because it's a Tony Reed is right article with Talib at a Bernie rally. Really think about this if you're a parent. So when I think about who I was going to support for president, 
It was so easy because all I had to think about was my two boys, Adam and Yusuf. You know, my son, Adam, is literally my policy advisor. I'm not joking. If you ever met him, I mean, my team, everybody will tell you. It's like, oh, it's Adam speaking. You know, he's a person. He's like, I'm so tired, mom, of people saying capitalism is socialism. Why not peopleism? You know, he, he one time... I was in a meeting with Chairwoman Maxine Waters and two other colleagues about pushing this uh, amendment to stop fossil fuel investment. Us, the government, stop investing in fossil fuels. And he whispers to me, Mom, can I have a piece of paper? And of course, he doesn't know how to whisper. Um, and I give him this piece of paper. You know, he sometimes likes to sketch. So I'm thinking he's drawing over there. Before that meeting ended, he handed me the piece of paper. I had posted it. And he said, Mom, you got to tell him. He says, we only have until 2030. Like, he was giving me these talking points. And at the end of the meeting, I put it up and I shared it to share me, share, Chairwoman Waters and my colleagues. And she just smiled. And I thought to myself, God, if we could just clear the room and sometimes put kids in the room. You know, me and my wife had a long conversation about this last night. Because <clears throat> it came up on a, a show we were watching. And I know I bash the whole gay agenda shit because it is, it's child abuse. I don't care what anybody says. It's fucking child abuse. But when I listen to that soundbite, you know, what kind of parent are you when you push your agenda on a child and tell them the world is going to end? And I know I've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, we really sat and talked about... <clears throat> All the incidents since 2016, but really before then, with Obama and black politicians and race hustlers talking about this is the first time my kid can be proud of America, and then it segues into this climate stuff where we're literally saying to kids, you're all going to fucking die, and having your kid freak out about that and have that over their head. I mean, it's child abuse no different than the gay agenda of sexualizing kids. Your kids shouldn't know that stuff. They shouldn't know about Trump. And I always see these people taking their kids to fucking protests and things like that. You know, I think it's important to show our kids that freedom of speech is important. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. But if you're taking them to a woman's march where they're talking about a guy grabbing pussies, and in the case of that lady who probably lied, but, you know, we did it a couple podcasts ago of of her saying, you know, she was afraid she was going to get grabbed at a woman's march in Washington. What are you doing to your kids? The positives are, yeah, they're going to be socially active, and they're going to get out and pay attention and that's not a bad thing you know I think our kids should grow opinions but I think it should be their opinions and I'm not tooting my horn but you know I exposed my kids to things I didn't tell them what to think but that didn't happen until they started becoming tweens you know 11 12 13 before then it was supposed to be fucking Tonka trucks and Legos and video games and dolls and makeup that she wanted 
we didn't say, hey, you know, during our time, this is really dangerous. The world's a dangerous place. Granted, the wall had fallen before my daughter was born, or maybe just right around the same time. No, she was born before. But we didn't say, hey, when you go to school, you're going to get shot because Columbine happened. Hey, you need to be careful out there because Al-Qaeda's everywhere. They're going to kill you and chop your head off. We didn't do those kind of things. You don't hear conservatives doing that kind of shit. But liberals, it's part of their Zelensky divide and conquer concept that you must brainwash motherfuckers out of the womb. And I heard that soundbite, and she's a fucking Islamist piece of shit, so I shouldn't be surprised. But I'm still like, what? what is the cost? What happens to these kids? And then, lo and behold, Greta Thunberg article comes out. <clears throat> Seriously, despite how much we love that how dare you gif of Greta Thunberg, we feel for her as well. The media won't let us forget for a second that... Thunberg has Asperger syndrome, but the rejoice in her powering through and see her as an example of why we should listen closely to all children with autism. But we've been told she's also suffered from depression before becoming Times Person of the Year for relentless climate alarmism, and her father talked about it with BBC Today. Washington Examiner. She stopped going to school. She was basically home for a year. She didn't eat for three months. Greta Thunberg's dad opens up about his daughter's struggles with depression. This is from their article. The father, Swedish environmentalist Greta Thunberg, said his daughter fell ill years before she participated in the school strike that launched her international fame. Speaking with BBC Today, Svant Thunberg, I think it's Svant, whatever, Uh, talked about the years of isolation and depression that young Greta endured. She stopped talking, she stopped eating, she stopped going to school. She was basically home for a year. She didn't eat for three months. Greta, 16, has spent 2019 traveling on the worldwide tour promoting her views on the dangers of climate change. She has barbed with Trump and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. As many people accuse Thunder's parent of exploiting her, it does seem strange that a child who stopped talking, eating, and going to school is now doing transatlantic voyages with strangers to admonish adults for destroying the future for teen, teens her age. Is this an inspiring story of how one can overcome depression or replace it with self-righteous anger? <clears throat> the One Legend The kid needs help, but not to be turned into some idol. This is dangerous, what they're doing to her psyche. The next few years will be worse for her. She has delusions of grandeur that many unscrupulous people exploited. She will have moments of clarity when she finds she was used and discarded. It won't be pleasant, and her parents let that happen. Explain to me again about the Swedish remarkable public health care system. These are all tweets. The exploitation of a child is an abomination. As a parent, a child not eating or talking for months would have met... Not had me not sleeping at night desperately trying to help wouldn't be sharing either I believe that the type of autism she has created a constant state of fear in this instance the parent, patents the parents I think is what she meant to say have exploited that symptom by feeding her with global warming stuff the poor kid is doomed for depression from both her illness and parents not a fan but emphatic sad that another neurotic person has not been helped but their neurosis fed by dysfunctional parents and guardians. 
A map of Hollywood and social media PC activists is a depression that kind kind of thing you expect to see from a child while you are reprogramming them, reprogramming them with fear. The world is going to end before you will have children, and only you can speak about it. Here's a platform and a lot of money. <clears throat> this will all work out fine. Trust Daddy. What was she depressed about? Based on what she is preaching, I'd say that a good portion of the reason for her depression would be the dangerous and indoctrination the kid receives at school. I feel bad that she's now being used to push the agenda and being a lightning rod for criticism. For the record, not weaponizing medicine when she uses her medical degree is an attempt to panic people about Donald Trump. She just, you know, doing doctor things. Brandy X. Lee. For your information, I'm not weaponizing medicine as I'm responding to a real need, a medical need. Ordinarily, I do not comment on all public figures. And I kept with the Goldwater rule for 20 years, even as a forensic psychiatrist who is exempt. A comment not to malign public figure figures, but to inform the public about those who are positioned to cause real harm. In our political system, we're working in dangers we're contained. The reason for my speaking up would cease, and I would be able to go back to my own life, which is radically different than the one I am leading now. Her influence on why she's speaking up now? None other than celebrity teen activist Greta Thunberg. Something about Greta Thunberg, the young climate activist, struck a chord in me. She fell into a deep depression because of the climate science was real. <clears throat> then those in charge were not acting rationally to do what is necessary to save the planet, and she would have no future. I find myself unable to continue my own routine work, for it is the signs I see in the president were real, and there is no doubt now. And he had access to the nuclear weapons as well as many other lesser powers. Then those in charge are not acting rationally to save humanity. Some say I have no place in this discussion as a health professional. If that is real, <clears throat> can they possibly name a greater public health emergency, especially as a mental health professional, as a violence expert? I cannot think of anything that is more business right now. Gad Sad, Dear Dr. Brandy X, I know that you are an expert on real Donald Trump's psychological state, albeit without having ever worked with him. I hope that you can help me because I'm facing a delicate situation. I administered a version of the implicit associate test to my children using Trump-related stimuli. They did not recall in horror at the sight of Orange Man Bad. I fear that they might not be progressive, and I worry about their future. Should I commit them to a re-education program at Wellesley? Can I get a referral from you? And remember, she's been talking to Greta Thunberg. That person. Then the shit hits the fan. On Thursday, a Facebook glitch revealed who's posting on climate change alarmist Greta Thunberg's Facebook page. Her father, Savants Thunberg, and climate crisis activist Adarsh Prathap. Story goes... A bug that was live from Thursday evening until Friday morning allowed anyone to easily reveal the accounts running a page, essentially doxing anyone who are posting to one. Wired reported, not a conservative site. We quickly fixed an issue where someone could see who edited or published a story on behalf of a page when looking at its edit history. 
Facebook responded to the controversy in a statement. We are grateful to the security researcher who alerted us to this issue. But wait, we thought it was a young teenage girl trying to save the planet who was posting those things. You mean it's her dad who is basically exploiting her and some guy we've never heard of doing her post? Roger C. I'm curious, did anyone not know this already? Scarlet. Is anyone surprised? Sadly, Greta is being used as a human shield. She is the mouthpiece of an anti-capitalist status agenda allowed to make extreme and untrue statements without a debate or fact check because we are told that we can't criticize a disabled child. And I want you to just let that hit home. Nobody in the media talked about this. This wasn't on CNN, MSDNC, ABC, NBC, or CBS. Nobody looked at it. They just ignored it and ran away. But it was all over Twitter. So basically what everybody who's criticized Greta Thunberg and the agenda that's pushing her for weaponizing a child, all the theories are true. She's not saying this stuff. This is just like when AOC was found out to be just reading bumper sticker shit handed to her by a major group trying to overthrow the Democratic Party, basically, with candidates that are super extreme socialists. And then they disavowed her. The media just reported it and walked away. And now she's not as bumper stickery. She doesn't have the same gravitas to her statements. And you notice all the stories are kind of going away. And she's not the golden child. Here is Greta Thunberg, a person we said was getting fed bullshit because they knew if they used a child, it would work better a la Stoneman Douglas, which was also found to be getting fed, prepped, researched, taught how to talk by CNN. We played all this on the show basically just props and now Greta Thunberg is found to be just a prop saying the words her child abusing father uses really break that down a kid with a mental illness being brainwashed by parent and an organization and made to tour the world fucking sail over on boats in the middle of the Atlantic where she could die to push an anti-capitalist agenda. And Republicans are pieces of shit for talking about God to their kids. You fucking people. To our lighter fare. Alright, we start our lighter fare with people get angry on the road, but this is just fucking unbelievable. Um, <clears throat> tweets that came with it. Hold on a second, my screen locked up. The infamous El Guapo. Grand, this woman could be in on the joke, and this could be a faked incident. Social media is sadly built on plenty of fake videos. But admit it, when she yells at the guy in front of her about his Christian bumper sticker and wishes cancer on his kids, you envision every frothy mouth, angry lefty you've ever argued with. Tugboat Phil. The Democrat filmed in its habitat, going through its daily release of psychosis in the atmosphere. This is hilarious. And another one, she is Every lefty on Twitter. You're the one with the Christ thing on your car, you dumbass! Fuck you, man! 
The next one, I was going to play this Lego one, which is so awesome. That was all the best plays with, well, you know, I got time. I'm going to play this one. This is a Lego version of the best plays of the NFC Divisional game between the Seahawks and Packers. And then one play from every Packer game that was important. So basically 17 plays. Um, I know if you're not a Packer fan, uh, just fast forward. Good evening, everyone. The pack is back in the playoffs, and we welcome you to historic Lambeau Field in Green Bay. It is an overcast, chilly night here in the middle of January, but nonetheless, a great night for football in Town. Corey Lindsley looking back for the call. Rodgers moves Jones to his left. Here's the snap, rushes on. He looks, he lost. Left side, Devontae's got a touchdown on an over-the-shoulder grab in the corner of the north end zone. And the Packers take the lead on a 20-yard touchdown pass. Seattle in a pistol look with Marshawn Lynch behind Russell Wilson. Slot to the right side. Snap to Wilson. Blitz on. He steps up. Now he's hit and sacked for the first time tonight. That was B.J. Goodson flushing him, Wayne. Zadarius Smith on the sack. Dwight. Slot right. They stack the two receivers on the right side. Here's the give. Aaron Jones to the end zone. Touchdown. Straight ahead run. They carved up a beautiful hole off left guard. And Aaron Jones, second touchdown of the night. Rodgers under center, single back offense, Jones the lone back, fake to Jones, Rodgers deep drop, looking, pops it over the left side, Devontae wide open, outside the numbers 20, cuts it back right past Flowers, 10 to the 5, to the end zone, high stepping, touchdown, Devontae Adams, 40 yards. Wilson shotgun, Homer to his left. Long count, proud and full throat, snap to Russell Wilson, rushes on, Wilson is had a set, it is Preston Smith with a huge play, sacked him back at the 36 yard line, oh that was mega play. A huge play here for the Packers. Rodgers in the shotgun, three receivers right. Devontae left, snap to Rodgers. Blitz on, he throws it over the middle. Jimmy Graham's got it, stumbling close to the first down. He's got the first down from right to left. Between the numbers, he goes down on the left side. 36-yard line of Seattle, first and 10, gain of nine. Oh, that was huge, and that'll do it. The Green Bay Packers have advanced to the NFC Championship game with a 28-23 victory over the Seattle Seahawks. And like confetti falling from the sky, it starts to snow here at Lambeau Field. Who said God's not a Packers fan?
finally has some time. And it's going to air it out deep downfield. And at the 27-yard line, that is Marquez. Cousins wanted Thielen. Throws a Hail Mary. Kevin King, did he come up with it? Free play for Rodgers. He knows where to go with it for Valdez Scantling. In the end zone, it's a Packer touchdown. Rodgers floats it. Adams, what a throw, what a catch. Devontae Adams down inside the 10. Play action. Prescott steps into it. Cooper off his hands and into the arms of Jair Alexander. Alexander on a big return for the Green Bay Packers in the Dallas territory. And what a big play by this defense. Earlier here, third down and five. Rodgers, same side. And this time, it's in the hands of Lazard. Incredible play. 35-yard touchdown. Field is solid as Rodgers goes for something much bigger. Kumaro dies for the pylon. It's a touchdown. In out there. Third and one. Rodgers under pressure again and just has to flip it. And it is going to be caught by Williams for the touchdown. Wow. <laughs> what a game this is. Here's a first and goal. Getting away from the heat and flipping it for the touchdown to Jamal Williams. The best of all of them. On second and ten. And zone picked off on a deflection by Tremont Williams. Williams. Under pressure again, another near sack, and then he does get it away to Jamal Williams. They take it to Jones. Great protection. Rodgers wide open in the end zone, and that is a touchdown to Alan Lazard in Green Bay back on top. Packers go back to work from their 12-yard line. It's Aaron Jones up the middle. Across the 30 and still going into Redskins territory and finally dragged down by Monte Nicholson. Third down, four-man rush. He's got time again. He's got Kubero wide open and then he makes a move. Jake Kubero down to the 25, still going. Kubero all the way down inside the 15. Here's the play action boot. Time to crank it up downfield and intercepted. Kevin King weaving his way back on the return. Just when they found a little bit of rhythm, Kevin King with the pick. Rodgers, pressure going deep down the middle. It's caught for the touchdown. Pass wide open. Adams makes the catch, makes a move, sprinting for the end zone. And then finally, I was flipping around the internet the other day, or no, I was watching YouTube, and this just popped up. It was actually the a YouTube app on Dish, and you know, I never thought of this. But I guess this theory isn't new. It's been around for a while. That Ferris Bueller never really existed. He was just in Cameron's head. And it's kind of like when you figure out the Matrix at the end, you go, whoa. And I might be a simpleton, but this made me go, whoa. 
Let's surrender. Never. It has been three decades since Ferris Bueller took the day off. That is, if you believe that Ferris Bueller actually exists. What if the deeply carefree, lovable boy wonder Ferris isn't a real person? Instead, he and his extravagant sick day about town are the fantasies of a teen psyche going rampant from parental neglect. Ferris is a larger-than-life hero figure formed in the mind of the film's most emotionally conflicted character, Cameron. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. There's nothing he can't handle. I can't handle anything. School, parents, future. Ferris can do anything. Both Cameron, played by Alan Ruck, and Ferris, played by Matthew Broderick, wake up sick. The timing is convenient. Now get dressed and come on over. Can't stand that I'm sick. That's all in your head. Come on over. Ferris phones Cameron looking for a car. Cameron has access to the means of travel, which makes the day possible. can't think of anything good to do. How did Ferris know what he said? Minutes later, Ferris knows Cameron is sitting in his car, debating whether or not to come over. Granted, maybe he just really knows his friend's mannerisms. Or maybe he's not real. Maybe the two are so successful during their fake phone call to Principal Rooney because they're parts of the same brain. Ferris convinces Cameron to take his father's $250,000 Ferrari. Cameron rides in the back of the car during the whole voyage like a passenger, relinquishing control. A closer look reveals the car's license plate is nervous. Ferris is Cameron's way of momentarily letting go of his deep emotional pain and worry. Once Ferris is behind the wheel of the situation, he's in control. Things get fun. Cameron's sickness suddenly vanishes. I feel pretty good, yeah? I feel real good. But as Cameron later admits, he's still in control. I made you take the car this morning. I could have stopped you. Even Ferris's trademark way of talking to the camera makes us feel like he's our imaginary friend, guiding us with irresistible life lessons. These segments remind us of a voice in our head or a face in the mirror. What do you do if you're a confused and emotionally troubled teen fantasizing about a more thrilling life? You steal a fancy sports car, pick up the beautiful girl from school, go to the city, visit Wrigley, eat at a fine restaurant, deceive the authorities, crash a parade, sing for a crowd, and do all the wild and bold things that Cameron as Cameron is afraid of doing. You see and do a time-defying number of things in the span of a school day, cramming at least three days' worth of activity into an afternoon. you realize if we played by the rules right now, we'd be in gym? Sloan says to Ferris near the end... You knew what you were doing when you woke up this morning, didn't you? Sure he did. He woke up and fantasized about a wonderful day. I recall Central Park in fall. I recall Central Park in fall. How you tore your Sloan may be someone that Cameron is merely aware of, a figure he crushes on from afar. Ferris says he fears Cameron will marry the first girl who pays attention to him. And Cameron may be wishing that girl was Sloane. She's beautiful and desirable, and through Ferris, attainable. As Ferris, anything is possible, including having the girl of his dreams. Hi, how you doing? Hi. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> I'm not getting married. Give me one good reason, why not? I'll give you two good reasons why not. My mother and my father. That's why he's sick all the time. He's the only guy I know who feels better when he's sick. 
On top of Ferris's adventurous spirit and luck with girls, Cameron might also fantasize about parents like Ferris's. Ferris's loving parents are exactly the fantasy that a boy would dream up if his own wealthy, cold mother and father showed more affection for their expensive things than their own son. Just as the exaggerated way the town rallies around Ferris could represent Cameron's teenage wish to be loved on a grander scale, it could also be an extension of his cry for his parents' attention. Let my Cameron go. I think I see my dad. Son of a bitch is down there somewhere. My old man pushes me around. If Cameron does invent an imaginary best friend to help him escape reality, Ferris also becomes the creation that gives Cameron the heart to stand up to his neglectful father and his own lack of self-esteem. Cameron has more claim to being the dramatic protagonist of the movie because he undergoes change based on a major revelation about his character. For Cameron, the day is a milestone in his growth from insecure adolescence to self-assured manhood. I am not going to sit on my ass as the events that affect me unfold to determine the course of my life, I'm going to take a stand. After that car is wrecked, he decides to face his family reality while simultaneously creating an implausible escape for his fantasy persona. Ferris doesn't change at all. He remains the same fully formed miracle of a person, almost like a fairy. A Peter Pan who isn't subject to the same rules of gravity as the rest of us. What do you think Ferris is going to do? Of course, the theory that Ferris doesn't exist requires the viewer to overlook some things, like Rooney's phone conversation with Ferris's mom, or his intrusion of the Bueller house and his run-in with Jeannie. Those would be weird and unnecessary things for Cameron to fantasize. But even if it's unlikely that Ferris is literally intended to be imaginary, reading the movie this way underlines how the tortured Cameron struggle is the serious beating heart of what would otherwise be light comic distraction. Tired of being afraid. Through Cameron, the movie touches on deep adolescent doubt and the terrifying scope of the unknown that lies ahead of the teenager. I weep for the future. Real or not, for Cameron and for us all, Ferris is the magical, carefree, lucky charm that we all dream of, especially on those days when we're not feeling so hot. For the first time in his life, he's gonna be just fine. Being Ferris's ninth sick day of the semester, this particular day off isn't that significant to him. Its weight comes from how it touches camera. It's the best day of my life. And before we go to our last sound by the day, this is America. I gotta get a little impeachment in, and I know this is supposed to be our non-politics, but this is how I wrote it. ABC News, Adam Schiff waiting years for the further testimony would completely negate the impeachment power that is allow the president by virtue of obstruction to prevent his own impeachment. That was an unacceptable course. But both that and this Pelosi one, Speaker Pelosi, he has been impeached forever. They can never erase that. Journos, when Pelosi gives them talking points, 10 print screens of them all carrying it, not in a way of reporting, but as an ingredient. Kelly O'Donnell, House impeachment manager Jerry Nader says the Senate is on trial as well as the president. They actually believe they have that kind of power. Steve Guest, Nancy Pelosi repeatedly misquotes Ukrainian call transcripts on House floor. 
Pelosi lied about what was the transcript by switching us to me. Ridiculous. People have had truth on their side, don't need and don't feel they need to lie as Pelosi and Schiff do. And listen to these people. Finally, uh, some have suggested as as, uh, part of your question, why didn't we wait uh, to get more testimony? Well, we have sought McGahn's testimony, Don McGahn, the president's lawyer, um, since April of last year. We still don't have a final court judgment. So, yes, we could have waited years to get testimony, further testimony, from all the people the president has been obstructing. But essentially, that would completely negate the impeachment power. That is, allow the president, by virtue of obstruction, to prevent his own impeachment. And uh, that was an unacceptable course, particularly when the whole object of the president's scheme was to cheat in the election, which is the ordinary mechanism for dealing with a corrupt presidency. And said he could say to the president, he could make, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Do you paint houses too? What is this? Do me a favor. You know, I once again, that's multiple times they have lied. They have misread the transcripts. They've done everything they can, just everything they can to literally make it what it's not. And I think that tweet from, I didn't grab the person's name, it just stood out. If you're on truth, you don't need to lie. When the Republicans went out there and did it for Clinton, he lied under oath. American people didn't agree. He didn't get impeached. But he lied. He did have sexual relations, and he did it to the people, and he did it under oath, so he's fucked. But this is just some made-up fucking bullshit. But it's everything with the liberals. It's emotion, not facts. They construe everything from climate change to gun violence to everything as a fucking lie. And they really show their true colors whenever a Republican's in the president and we have any kind of action around the world, as I laid out in part A of this podcast, you know, 3,000 people killed by Obama via drones and strikes. And, you know, Trump does one person who wasn't a military, who was a military leader, and we're up in arms. So our last two sound bites for the worst sound bites of the day. A New York Times reporter applauds Iran for showing more restraint than the U.S., which we prove is false because they did hit barracks. There just wasn't anybody there. And this soundbite by Andrea Mitchell, droning then isn't droning now, which I played. I got to play again because that is what's wrong with our media. They are no longer objective. If you can utter that one versus 30 or 3,000 plus people, Man, you've lost it. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing fake liberal agenda stories. This is America in 2019. I got the strap.
The perception of America right now, I would say in the Middle East, is that we act outside the law. Um, I hear this all the time from Iraqis, from Syrians who do not see a, a legal process behind what we are doing, specifically because of the failure of the Iraq war and the, and the tainted intelligence that led to that point. One of the takeaways of the past week is that we actually saw, in my opinion, Iran act with perhaps more restraint uh, than our own government. The rocket attacks that uh, the missiles that landed on uh, the bases where there were American troops, the not kill anyone. That seems like a wise decision that, uh, that, that they made. Thankfully, our own government has now backed off as well. That. Joining me now to sort it all out is Jeff Mason, White House correspondent for Reuters. Jeff, as you well know, it was the administration who raised the subject of imminence. That's the That's standard right. that they put out there, Pompeo and, of course, the president himself that expanded on it. If you can talk about it on Fox to Laura Ingram and talk about it in Toledo, how can Mike Pence then say, well, we can't talk about what the justification is. You know, secondly, the droning of terrorists is not the same as droning and killing a, a general who is part of a state government. Sure. Um, there's a legal, a legal distinction there. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of have to listen to William Barr's comments, and it made me think they're showing a little bit of regret for not having just said from the very beginning this wasn't about imminence, this was about taking somebody out who needed to be taken out, which you've heard Trump say repeatedly, this is a bad guy, we needed to get him. But for something as weighty as potential war with an adversary like Iran, they didn't have a, a clear and still don't have a clear, consistent explanation for why they they did that particular attack you know once again if that's how you look at things you are one fucked up motherfucker just fucked up just fucked up you're you're ignoring the protesters themselves in iran are saying what we're saying they didn't show restraint they've never shown restraint they've killed muslims they killed americans they killed everybody so no and andrea mitchell just like I said in the first podcast, part A, I'll say in part B, you are a fucking miserable hack. Just a hack. And that wraps up a two-part, four-plus-hour episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP podcast gmail.com get the show on soundcloud podcast addict tune in radio google play itunes blueberry and stitcher and pocket cast make sure you check out the facebook page at fop podcast and the twitter page at fop tony reed so we're going to go with the next podcast and um i wrote it down here so i wouldn't fuck it up the 22nd the 22nd of january year of our lord 2020 and it'll be shorter than this stuff. But I just had a bunch of crap. I had all those lighter fares. What the hell? This will keep you busy for a while. If you're an avid listener, you can listen to one. You'll listen to the other. And that'll get you through the weekend. Um, and I apologize it's so long. But it's just, there's a lot of stuff to hit. And I just wanted to hit it all. Make sure this uh, weekend you stay cool or warm in the damn south. It's going to get cold. Not getting any snow, which kind of sucks. Going to hit some fishing tomorrow, so if you follow the Twitter account, you'll see some pictures. As always, disconnect from all your devices. Do not give the yeah, yeahs. Be, as they say, present. That's the new phrase for this. Be present. So be present for your loved ones. And please, tune back in next Wednesday for another show. Until then, I thank you all for listening, and take care. 
Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Makes every day count. I'm the sun and the air. I'm the shine. Oh, my God.